And we are going to be learning today on the fascinating topic of the Or HaChayim HaKadosh, the Holy Or HaChayim. Um, Rav Chaim Ibn Attar, I wanted to start off by thanking Leslie and Nia Honigman, who are sponsoring today's shir in honor of the memory of um, Dr. Honigman's father, Yerucham Ben Aryeh Leu HaKohen, whose yard side will be? Was already. Thank you for, for making it part of the learning today. This is a very special opportunity, and Baruch Hashem, we get to see the children, the Tzetzayim, the Tzetzayim, the Tzetzayim, and the Tzetzayim, the Tzetzayim, the Tzetzayim, and our Shul. Mitzvah that should continue to give a tremendous amount of, of uh, Aliyah for the Neshama. Amen. Let us learn to this morning. We're in the middle of doing a series on introductions. So let's, let's get to meet the Or HaChaim HaKadosh in his introduction to the Torah. The Or HaChaim HaKadosh was an incredible human being, very mysterious human being, who did not live long. He lived only 47 years, right? So he lived a very short life, relatively speaking, but it was a very full life, and we're going to try to appreciate some of the legacy he left behind us. The uh, Rav Chaim Ibn Atta was born as a young boy, Chaim, in the city of Saleh, Morocco. So just if uh, I actually just put a map in, if you take a look on the second page here, you can see this is a map of Morocco over here. Morocco is in the top left-hand side of Africa, essentially the northwest corner. So you see on the, on the western coast, there's a city called Rabat. Rabat is a city on the western coast. A northern suburb today, or rather a village, which used to be north of that, was called Saleh. Actually, it was interesting. It was one of the ports, which were one of the, ca the capital ports for the Barbary pirates. For those who are following, in, during the times of the Mediterranean raids, when the pirates would take captives across the Mediterranean Sea. This was one of the ports they used. That's where he was born. And uh, at the ripe age of nine, he was forced to flee Saleh because of political unrest. If you read about the Jews under Islam, and in Morocco in particular, the Maghreb, which is the, the, seen as the, the West, Saleh was called the sunset because it was the westernmost in the, in, in the Arab world at this point in time. When they were, it depended who was in power. And there were little fiefdoms of people who were in power at different times in different cities. And some of them went exceptionally well for the Jews and some of them went exceptionally unwell for the Jews. There's a lot of interesting history specifically in Morocco. Today, Morocco is very easy to visit and there's a tremendous amount of Jewish history. And they actually welcome the tourism because they welcome the money. And they're generally very, they generally are actually very open. There's a lot of Jewish cemeteries, Jewish shuls to visit in Morocco for those who have been. And it's, uh, it's a really a, a, a fascinating history. But at this point in time, at the age of nine, the vizier of his particular area started persecuting Jews. And th that being the case, he and his family were forced to flee. What is interesting is, is that uh, he's actually named Chaim for his grandfather, who was the Rav in Saleh. But his grandfather was also Chaim. But in the Sephardi tradition, he was named after his living grandfather who tutored, who tutored him, who, who taught him. His father was also a rabbi. And he was going to have the opportunity of being a rabbi were it not for this little, um, this little scuffle. Uh, it is interesting, if you take a little, little further back in his life, it actually isn't unfortunately too new because his family, in fact, the Atar family, were ultimately originally part of the expulsion from Spain when there was the overflow of all Spanish Jewry across the, we'll call it the Western European area. Some went to Portugal, later on to be kicked out of Portugal. 
and some went into the Ottoman Empire, some went south directly into Morocco, across the Mediterranean down south. And this is, this is where the Atar family went, so unfortunately they were used to exile. They fled to Meknes, which was a very big Jewish center in those days. If you take a look in the, on the map, that means they were fly, fleeing eastwards to Meknes. There's a lot of interesting things. There's a lot of... The, the, when I had an opportunity in, in, um, in Yeshiva University, one of the courses I took was the Jews under Islam, and we studied the texts of the Jews living in Meknes. It was an area, a time called the Takanat Meknes. You can read about what the Jews were living through at that time. The Orachayim fled to Meknes um, at this point in time. When his father-in-law passed away, he married, actually he married twice, were unable to have children, um, and he, uh, he returned to Saleh in the year 1725 and remained there essentially as a teacher, as a, uh, he was also professionally a goldsmith, <laughs> apparently. And he was able to, uh, to, uh, to, to live there and teach Torah for a number of good years, till the year 1739. Okay, at this point in time, he is now 43 years old. And at which point he decides he would like to make Aliyah to the land of Israel. And at which point, he starts making the very difficult journey across North Africa to Algeria and takes the journey across the Mediterranean, ending up in the port city of Livorno in Italy, which at this point in time is a huge hub of Jewry. If you take a look on the, in the maps on page 3, Livorno is in the northern coast of, or the northwestern coast of Italy. It's a very large, um, very large city. There's a great yeshiva, there's a great printing press in Livorno um, for the Jews. In fact, under the Ottoman, uh, under the, uh, the, at this point in time, I believe that Rav Yosef Karo spent some time studying in Livorno himself, but that was a little earlier. And uh, at this point in time, um, the Orachim spends, he was meant, he meant to use this as a transition, but ends up actually staying there. They begs him to stay, and he ends up staying there two years. And from some of his great benefactors, allowed him to spend the time and invested in him to print. His, his magnum opus, which was the Or HaChaim on the Torah, which was published there in Livorno in Italy. Um, and which, by the way, because at this point in time he's in Europe, not Africa, there was the ability to prol proliferate his publication northwards, which meant it was an unusual cross-pollination which was going on over here, is that the Torah of one of the greats of the Sephardi tradition was now pro proliferating into Europe at the same time as the, as the expansion of the Hasidic movement, because one of his colleagues and contemporaries was the Yerav Yisrael Baal Shem Tov. And as the Hasidic movement started opening, the Orachim actually was taken up in the wave of the Hasidic movement and his thought was incorporated into it. Very fascinating. And this is part of being part of Europe at this point in time. In the, and two years later, he decides to make his way to 1742 to, to Israel itself. He enters the north of Israel in Akko, unable to get to Yerushalayim because of a plague, waits there until the 15th of Elul of that year, and finally, in, this is 1502, sorry, 5502 in the Jewish calendar, this is towards the end of the year in um, um, 1742, enters Yerushalayim with 30, a delegation of 30, establishes a yeshiva in Yerushalayim, and is able to, to, to take more funds from his benefactors in Italy, to invest in the very, very poor population in Yerushalayim at this point in time and passes away within the year on the 15th of Tammuz of that year. So after his dream to get to Yerushalayim, very little of it he actually managed to spend in Yerushalayim um, itself, but certainly his mark 
was made on it. It is, of course, as, as we, we've, we've learned before, we studied, that part of the reason it was so necessary for him to go at this point in time was 1740 was a very important year in the Jewish calendar. It was the year 5500. This was essentially halfway through the sixth, the, 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 the sixth millennia. Right, so it's, it's the, this is, if you think of every day of creation corresponding to a year, sorry, to a millennia of history, this is essentially Friday morning. Right, this is the end of the, of the night, the 500 years from 5,000 to 5,500. This is the beginning of the morning of the sixth day, which is why many of the Kabbalists were converging on Yerushalayim around this specific date, which is why he was moving westwards to Eretz Israel. Nonetheless, okay, this, is, this is the background of Arachim himself. Fascinating pers- uh, individual. We're going to look at a little bit of his pirush, some of the ideas that he talks about, and we will see some of the uh, episodes in his life, how they relate to that. So let's, let's start at the very beginning. Here is, here is the introduction of the Or HaChaim HaKadosh on the Torah itself. We're going to start on page, um, on page 7. This is where the actual introduction is to be found. And here is, uh, we, got the, we are very fortunate to have the vowel addition to this. So we have the vowelization. You'll notice something very interesting over here. Are there any extras? I'm sorry, this is just yeah, a copy. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. You'll notice something very interesting in the, in the introduction, and certainly the way it's laid out over here. What do, you, what do you see which is interesting if you look at the first column and a half? What do you notice about, about the way he structures it? The first word on every paragraph includes the word? Katav, to write. What's the last word of every paragraph? Chayim. So you notice that just in terms of the framing of it, Every paragraph is Katav Chayim, Katav Chayim, Katav Chayim, Chayim wrote. Right, so that's the way he's structuring his introduction. And what is interesting is that you'll notice that all these short paragraphs, these very staccato pieces over here, are going to be relating to different ideas, different descriptions, different values he's giving to Torah itself. So we're not going to do all of it because it's complex. But suffice to say, let's do a few examples just to see the, the, the we'll call it the breadth and perspective on the poetry of the Arachayim as he starts the Torah. Here's he's describing Torah. So let's start at the beginning. Just, we're we're going to look at just a few mo- moments here. In the first paragraph, HaMikhtav Mikhtav Elokim Hu, V'amoroz Hashem Bohem, HaShem Chem Dois, Gnu Zois, Ois Yos, Yagidu Lomo Vekutsehem, Lamalo Mehem, Ezu Dorash Rabi Akiva, Im Nukudos HaKesev El Sodom. So he says, he talks about the great value of every letter, but not just the letters, he says, even the crowns, which Rabi Akiva Darshaned, this, of course, he's referring to the Gemara in Menachos, Tavchov Tesem Beis, where it describes how when Moshe Rabbeinu went up to Har Sinai and saw this image of Hashem, saw Hashem, whatever this metaphor means, is tying these, these crowns to the letters. And he said, why do we need this? And HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, in the future, there's going to be an individual who's going to darshan, is going to expound Every crown of the Torah, who is this, Rabbi Akiva? Moshe Rabbeinu goes into the Shia Rabbi Akiva is giving. He's unable to penetrate what is going on. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, what, That conversation is so much depth as to what this is really going on over here. But he starts off by saying, I'm not taking anything for granted. Even the crowns, Rabbi Akiva, Darshan. That's step one. In the second paragraph, in the second line, he says, This is the second line of the second paragraph. Hashem gave wisdom to Shlomo to understand 3,000 marshals and 1,005 explanations. What does that mean? This is quoting, again, just 
The problem is that he's just quickly quoting all these midrashim. So what he's referring to is that when it says in Malachim, when it talks about the Malachim Aleph, when Shlomo, Hashem Nosan Shlomo, the beginning of Perik Gimel, when, where, where Shlomo receives this great wisdom, Rashi quotes the midrash saying, what does it mean he understood the great wisdom? He was able to say 3,000 parables on every Pasuk in the Torah. And each of those thousand parables had 1,005 interpretations. That's how much meaning there was. So what he's saying is, is, is again, there's the, there's the crowns. There's the meaning embedded in each, in each, in each letter, in each pasuk. Let's go to the next step of his interaction. Paragraph 3. Mikhtav lechazek yud hei vav. What does that mean? This is the writing is to strengthen the yud hei vav. What does that sound like? yud hei vav is? It's a partial expression of the name of Hashem, which means to say that we're missing, of course, the Yichud, which means to say the unification of the last two letters. But the first three letters is this, this learning is to strengthen Hashem's name, which means that part of what we're doing as we're studying Torah is not simply an intellectual enterprise where we feel very good about ourselves and we add a little bit to our, you know, put another notch on our belt. We are now essentially, we are the vehicles of expressing Hashem in this world by learning this Torah. We're expressing Hashem in this world by learning this. That's the way he looks at it. And he goes further. He says on the third line of this third paragraph in section 3. He talks about the relationship of a human being to Torah as a man to a woman who's getting engaged. Which means to say that there's a lot of work involved in, in, in the process of people finding each other. But ultimately, when they make the commitment to each other, they are there for each other fully. It is interesting, the Gemara does describe how the Torah is considered like a, when it says the word morasha, it doesn't just mean an inheritance or a camp. It means, it also means me'orasa, which means a betrothed one. And that means to say that there's a level of commitment, which is a bilateral commitment for a person who's willing to commit to it, it commits to him. That's, that that is, uh, is part of the description over here. Paragraph, well, again, these are all poetic references we could spend. There's a, in the, there's a beautiful pirush on the Orachaim called the um, Oriakar. And this, just this section, just these eight paragraphs have, have 23 pages of footnotes on. Okay, just to understand the complexity of this section. We're not going to get into all of it, but just to understand what he's trying to convey to us. Section 4, he says, The Torah is written on two sides. Now, let's think about that for a second. What does it mean, Mishnei Evrahim? What is he referring to? So famously, we know that the, the Torah describes in Parshas Kisisa that the Luchos were Mechtav Elokim. They were the writing of God that were written in Mishnei Abraham. And there's a very interesting miracle that that means to say that the engraving went all the way through. That could be seen in the right direction on both the ways. And there were certain letters which actually hang, hung in the balance where there was gra- engraved all the way through. Very fascinating. But what he's doing with that is he's expressing that one level further. Do you notice what he did? He said they're written on all their sides. Um, towards the person who wants to take, which means that it's not just a, the, the, you looked at the luchos on both sides, you saw the engraving, it means to say, if you want to come to the Torah, we who live in America in the year 2019, and look at that Torah, we will see something, because it's written on all of its sides. The Torah was not just for the Jews who lived in France, or the Jews who lived in Germany, or the Jews who lived in Morocco, or the Jews who lived in Israel. Every aver, every side has a, has, a, 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 has a face 
which a portal of access which we can if we want to access it. That's the way he's interpreting that idea in terms of homiletically. Um, uh, to take it further. Paragraph 6, again, we're just doing a little Rosh Tevos quickly. Um, in the, the second line of paragraph 6, he says, Ashomak Om, Kolelokim Adabere Love, Yidrushu Lehetiv. So he says, uh, oh, I apologize, let's do that from the beginning of the paragraph. Kirsovam Nemru. It's actually relates to something which we... I'm sorry, that's, I, I left out paragraph 5. I knew there was we were missing something because it's resting on the previous paragraph. He says this was given as the, the, the speech of Hashem, word for word, letter for letter. Here he's referencing the Rambam, where the Rambam says, by the way, the Orachim used to teach the Rambam. Uh, the, uh, so the Rambam says that a, a, a person who denies the veracity, the tradition of even one letter of the Torah, person says, you know, somebody else added this in, this was a footnote, this was even Moshe Rabbeinu as opposed to Hashem, that person is out of the fold. That is, that, that is heresy, a person does not have a chelik in the world to come. Very, pretty strong words. And what he's saying is that we need to understand, therefore, that when we're learning this, we're not learning somebody, you know, something which was human-made, even the greatest of humans who made it. This was every dictated from Hashem, word for word, letter for letter, which relates to the next paragraph, which we just did, which is that therefore every, every lacking or every addition is from Hashem. In paragraph 6, which means that when Moshe Rabbeinu was given the Torah, part of the Torah giving experience, unlike any other national revelation, which was ever described or wanted to be described. Most revelations were all personal revelations, right? Yoshika comes back, Paul comes back, Muhammad comes back, everybody comes back and says, I had a dream. Mr. Smith, everybody had their dream. And they come back and they tell everybody else about their dream and they create their religion from that dream. We had this national revelation. And part of the rational revelation was, the they're going to believe in you, Moses. Why? Because what happened at Sinai? Part of what happened at Sinai was when Hashem gave the Aserah Sadibros, Hashem spoke to us through Moshe Rabbeinu, and we heard it, and we heard him speak to, to Moshe Rabbeinu. And at a certain point, he said, you know, we can't handle this. This is too powerful for the human sensory capacity within the realm of this world. We were killed, so to speak, re reconstituted, and we said, you know, Moshe Rabbeinu will take it from here. But because we heard that, we knew that everything Moshe Rabbeinu told us was, in fact, true, because we heard it ourselves. In fact, you know, the, the famously... The Medrashrit says that it was just, whether it's all 10 Aseris Adibros we heard, or it was the first two, right? You know, there's a famous Medrashrit which describes, what does it mean the first two? The first two, the Ramban says, explains that the first two encapsulate all of the Torah because, you know, everything collapses into its primary, into its source, where it starts from. The first two commandments, I am God, is essentially all mitzvahs asay and mitzvahs lois asay, all positive and negative commandments, which essentially is about belief in God and no other power. If we can all put it into that, collapse all the Torah, it all does collapse into that. So we heard that from God. We heard that through Moshe Rabbeinu. At that point in time, it was too overpowering. We turned to Moshe Rabbeinu, you hear the rest, which means when Moshe Rabbeinu came down with the rest of the details, we knew that it was from Hashem because we heard the potential about, of that and the details came afterwards. We knew Moshe Rabbeinu actually had that from Hashem. So this is part of what he's saying over here in this paragraph. We heard it through Mo Mo Moses. Paragraph 7. So he says an interesting thing here. Now he shifts gears. This is to teach them Notice what has shifted over here in this paragraph. It's no longer about writing, but it's to teach them. What is he referring to now? This is now a shift into what is Torah Shabal Peh, the oral Torah. And that's why he talks about 
From the light of the Torah into the spirit of the man. Think about this. How could the divine rely on the fallible human being? But no, Hashem wants us to be part of that process. He gives us the Mikhtav Elohim and He says, I want you to take the traditions and uphold its meaning through the Nefesh Adam. Remarkable. So now we've shifted from Torah Shebech to the Torah Shebech We're partners in this enterprise as he goes on further. And that's why in the next paragraph, in paragraph 8, he says, Kosuvechad Omer Darsheni Vechyeh, Kosuvechad Omer Yashveni Ves Yashev. One verse says, expound me to live. One verse says, settle me and I will be settled. This refers to the written Torah which has many steroids in it, many contradictions, which requires the Torah Shabbat Peh to understand it and expound it. What is Shabbos for which there is capital punishment? We need the Torah Shabbat Peh to know that. That's the first part. Darshani vechyei. Darshani, expound me so you should live. Because you need to understand what I'm talking about, the Torah Shabbat says. And the other side is, But when you read the Torah Shabbat Peh, there's so many different disputes and arguments. And how does it all work out? And the Gemara and the contradictions. And how does it all work out? So it says you need to go back to the Torah Shabbat Sav to make it whole. To come back to the real text where it's anchored in. So this, it's this, this process which is interconnected. You need both the Torah Shabbat Sav, both the Torah Shabbat Peh. This is, just, this is part of the introduction. It's really worthwhile just to, just to appreciate. So he, what he's trying to do is he's trying to lay the table. So we're not just going to fall into his Pirusha Torah. We're going to come into it with a real sense of, uh, of gravitas. And now he says, in order to be able to study Torah, after getting through these, these, these paragraphs, he says, in order to study Torah, there are three prerequisites necessary to learn Torah. And here's how he lays it out. Very interesting. This is before he's about to tell you methodology. Methodology is wonderful. And we've studied a lot of methodology in the introductions to other Mepharshim on the Torah. But he says, before methodology, you need principles. And here are the principles. So we're going to go to section 9, which is the next paragraph. And he says the following very interesting insight. He says, I'm going to tell you the clear way to truth which is sprouting forth from the earth based on the Pasuk. Again, everything is based on Pesukim. Every, every, every sub-phrase is based on a Pasuk. I'm coming towards the water. Chaim is, uh, the, 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 is coming towards the water. <laughs> I'm touching the honey of the Torah, the end of the stick, which is sweeter than the, the, the honey of, of Yonatan, who found the honey at the end of his staff and tasted it. Again, every step over here has references to Tanakh. And, and I, I hoped and aspired to, to shine and to, to enjoy the light of Torah. There's two or three things which are necessary for me to understand it. And here they are. This is principle number one. He says, number one is I, I, I avoided involvement in this world, over-involvement in this world. Yes, we're human beings. Yes, we're meant to be in the world of commerce. Yes, we're meant to be involved in this world and we're supposed to try to live somewhat relatively comfortable lives but in the end of the day and this is the way this is the, the, just the way I would, I would explain it is is that a human being has a certain amount of bandwidth and that bandwidth means to say passion interest time and energy there's a certain amount of, a certain amount of bandwidth every human being has 
And if we spend a lot of that involved in the basic pleasures of this world, on the, we'll call it the first and maybe even second tier of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, there's not much space left for anything else. It just isn't. If, if our interests and our passions are towards certain entities, whether it be convenience, entertainment, which are the two guiding principles of, the West, of Western society today, there is very little less, less, uh, left else for, for anything else. It's not, because it's, it's not because a person may be negative or bad or evil. It's just there isn't space for anything else to, to exist. When the Mishnah Pergava says, what's the, we learned this yesterday with Rav Cook. The, the Mishnah Pergavas in the, in the sixth parak says, there is a Dark Torah, there's a way to learn Torah. And what, what are the Dark Torah? What is that? Which means eating bread of the salt, drinking a measured amount of water, and sleeping on the earth. And obviously that, interpret, that, 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 um, that finds interpretation in different ways in different generations. But what it does mean to say is, and I remember that when I was in Yisrael, um, the Rosh Hashiva Rav Feldman used to say, and he just, uh, it's such an important statement, he said that, he would used to say that he would come to the base Medrash and he would always remember, you know, he would see, you know, the guy, the, the guy settling down for afternoon seder, he had his little cup of coffee next to him, all nice and comfortable, and he had his favorite shoes on, and the seat was just right, and he sits down to learn, he says, how can you learn like that? Now, of course, comfort is important, but the point is, is that too much comfort, and the example I just, uh, I remember is that, the Shach, the Sif coin, when he wrote his Pirush on the, uh, on, on the Shulchan Aruch, there were times when he was in, running from persecution, from the Tach V'Tach, from the Chamanichsi massacres in Poland, to the degree that he had to, when he was in the barn houses, had to warm the ink for which he was writing with his body heat in order to, that, it should, that it should defrost so he could write his Pirush. Now, we don't need to put ourselves in such situations, but the point is, it says Arachai, is that we're never going to get Torah if Torah just comes as an accolade to an already full life. It doesn't work like that. We need to be cutting out time, energy, money to be able to study Torah because it hasn't, hasn't entering otherwise. There needs to be sacrifices made. That's the first thing that he says. That's stage number one. Verse Abayis. And by the way, he, was, he, he learned about this. He lived a life like this. He lived a very difficult life. Number two. Verse Abayis. We're skipping a few lines to the, the second one. He says, I took time for perspective. I took time to, to think about things. And this is important. You're going to see later on in his schedule of his day, he had a very difficult life for a number of years, and he didn't have that time. And he bemoaned the fact that he doesn't have time. We'll get there in a second. But the point is that it's interesting. Thinking does not happen in small moments. In fact, today, I remember just a few weeks ago, I was sitting with Dr. Pelkovitz, and he said that, you know, when they go through doctoral dissertations these days, they're able to see every 15 minutes where they would check social media because there'll be a, there's a break in logic. And this is doctoral dissertations. We're talking about people over here, you know, the highest echelon of society today. People who are writing papers who are, you know, spent years and years and years going through their undergraduate, their master's, and now their PhD. There's after five years of, of research. And they're writing their dissertation. And there's 15-minute incremental breaks where the logic breaks down because they're checking social media. That's how we think today, right? So says the Arachim, in order to be able to think, you need to have time. In order to have time, you can't have email open, says the Arachim. That's, otherwise, we're not going to be able to think, right? We keep getting distracted. There's research done about how, how unable we are to return to the subject we were, we were working on if there's something else there. And number three, and I think this is the most profound of all of, the, all of them, is Vagimel, just skipping a few lines to the period. He says, the, the idea of fear of heaven. I'm saying in front of Hashem who knows all secrets, He says, you know what? I'm sacrificing, I'm publicly saying, I'm sacrificing myself in Yiras Hashem for this. Which means, 
I'm not writing this to get peer-reviewed. I'm not writing this so it should be the next bestseller. I'm not writing this in order to be able to, to gain accolades and be reviewed in the New York Times. The reason why I'm doing this is because I fear Hashem. I want, this is an expression of my fear of Hashem. Think about this. Think about the next time you go to a book launch and the person gets up and says, I did this in order to, as an expression of fear of God. His prerequisite to all the methodology is this. Number one is lack of distraction physically or mentally. Those are the first two. And then also focus in terms of, in terms of his year Very, by the way, he's not, he's not talking, he's not preaching. He's describing his, his journey. Happens to be we can learn a lot from it. But nonetheless, this, this is what the, the Arachim says. Let's, let's go a little further over here. Into the, now it's got moved on from the methodology into section 10. He now talks about his own struggles. Here's what he says in section 10. He says, I've been surrounded by the Sa'or Sheba Issa. Usually what does that mean? Sa'or Sheba Issa usually means like the flower in the, the yeast in the dough, which means to say it's, it's on the one hand a negative and positive thing at the same time. It's usually used to describe the Yetzer Hara. I was, uh, I was forced out of Egypt. I was chased or almost captured with, what's Mesira? Being handed over. And Alila is rumors. is telling. In the hands of a very cruel uh, a cruel overlord. So he's describing that there was, there was foul play when he had to flee from Morocco. There were people who, whether it be Jewish or non-Jewish, who were involved in the, in, in, in the libels about him, forcing him to flee Africa. And even when one fell, another one arrived, which means that the viziers had the similar constitution and perspective on Jews. There was no There was no moment of security in my life. And I was accused financially and capitally. Right? There was accusations made about him, or perhaps demands made out of him to pay money, or perhaps even his life, which was uh, which is why he fled. And he goes on. We're not going to. We don't have the time to go into too much detail now. But the next paragraph, he talks about how he's able to arrive. He is able to arrive in the next port, and he is able to teach. But he has to support himself. And he has really four to five hours a week to really study on about uh, the 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 parsha itself until he arrives at a time where he's able to spend more time giving drashos and teaching. And he talks about his schedule of uh, how much Torah he's able to imbibe. And then he says. Um, he says a very interesting thing, just we're going to just one note to a notion in section 12, then we get to the main section, which is section 13. In section 12, he says a very interesting thing. There's the brackets for where it starts. We're starting four lines in, and he says an interesting thing. He says, Usayag Asisi, four lines in. In the middle of the line, he says, Usayag Asisi, I made a fence, Shemashachti Yodimi Pesichas Svarim, Loilakaloisom, Vilakavonasi, Khalil. I'm not going to uh, open the Svarim, not to curse them or to disgrace them, God forbid. They are all, you know, these great crowns. I don't want to open the books before writing mine, not to wear their clothes. Meaning, I don't want to plagiarize the ideas, God forbid. I'm not trying to be smarter 
than those who came before me. He says, look, I'm not, not trying to, to reinvent the wheel. I just want to try to give something unique. And I'm going to obviously only reach a tefach, one little cue, one little hand's breadth into where they're getting. But nonetheless, that's, that's, that's what I'm going to try to do. Which is, by the way, why we'll see that much of the Orachim HaKadosh is grandly unique. A lot of his ideas are remarkable, but unseen. And this is, this is part of his methodology. Now, he has, here he actually gets down to his real methodology, which is in paragraph 13. This is the paragraph we're going to focus a little bit of attention on, and then, and then, and then perhaps um, take a look at some examples. Here we go. This is all introduction, right? At this point, he's just described the Torah as its, uh, the lofty level of Torah. He's described the three axioms upon which he's making his pirush. He's described the autobiographical details of getting to the point of doing it. And now he goes on to describe what he's about to do. In section 13, he says, Kosavti v'kibatsti al-yad, al-yad, ze'er shom, ze'er shom. I gathered a little bit here, a little bit there. Ei sasher ha'vinoisi, that which I was under, able to understand. Mehem yishuv ha'ksuvim derech iyun b'shi'ur ha'dibur atzmoi derech pshat. Some of them were a little bit of pshat. Mehem derech drash, some of them were expounding. Mehem derech remes, some of them were more of a hint. Mehem derech soid, b'derech nistar v'niglele enayim. And some of them were, were hidden from the eyes. Sometimes, he says, I warn you, I will say things which are going to be which sound that they are like different to Chazal. Now remember, this was a big uproar earlier on when the Rashpam and the Ibn Ezra were talking about this. This was already a very, very controversial uh, sugya. At this point in time, a number of centuries later, he's saying this, and don't worry. He says, Ukvar gilisi da'ati, I'm explaining to you, I'm not disregarding those who came before me. Even a hairbreadth. Or says, but there is space in Torah. Remember what he said before about Shlomo? 3,000 metaphors and 1,005 explanations. He says there's a lot of undiscovered terrain, pregnant terrain, which needs to be cultivated and grown and ex- expressed in the world. And that's what I'm going to be focusing on, even if it sounds like it's different to some of the things that came before me. That's the way he's looking at it. And boy, does he do that. And therefore he says, And is, of course, the only person who can do this is a person who's a Ben Torah. That's me not to say, not everybody has the rights to this. So in the realm of Alocha, once again, like the Ibn Ezra says, that I will not change. I'm not going to suggest anything else in Torah, in, in Alocha. Alocha, I do not have the license to. When it comes to explaining the, the, the Torah itself, in the, the aspects of Agada, in the aspects of Machshava, then in that space, I do, I think I do have something to contribute, Arachim says, which may be different to the pre- previous people. And by the way, now we're not going to read this in, inside, but it is worthwhile for those who are interested. The text is right here. He then goes on to describe after this how he's decided he's, uh, at this point in time to make his trip to Eretz Israel, which is section 14. And he decides how he's going to make this trip. And in section 15, very fascinatingly enough, he actually makes personal mention of the four main benefactors who enabled him. Remember, at this point in time in Livorno, which is when he's writing this, and this is when the introduction is written, and this time is the first time in his life that he's really had a little bit of peace and calm where people actually appreciate him and he's not being persecuted. So at this point in time, he mentions now by name 
four individuals in section 15. They have the schus of being a part of what I'm doing. Um, and, uh, and he goes on to describe their names and who they are and their children. It's a very beautiful thing. You can see this introduced includes in his introduction. They are clearly his financial supporters who are enabling him to live there, teach there and publish there. Which is what he is, uh, what he's doing. Which is we have not seen up till now in the introductions. Um, in in, the, in this regard, it is interesting. You can there's, there are a number of fascinating svarim written in Hebrew about the mechtavim of the Or Hachayim. You can read his letters, and even when he leaves Livorna, you can see the letters he and his cohort write back to Italy. Referencing these same people and asking them for more help as he's trying to establish Israel at this point in time is, is, is abjectly destitute. There's no funds there. And he's talking about establishing this yeshiva for 30 people and the building. It's fascinating to follow through with this description. This. And remember, we're at the very tail end of his life when he's late 40s and he's about to pass away. But nonetheless, this is, this is his perspective. The last thing I want to just focus on in the introduction for a moment, then we're going to see some examples, is in section 16 on the left-hand column of the last page on page 9, and he just explains the naming of his book. I call this the light of Chaim. <coughs> Torah is described as light to illuminate. And since there's a lot of things which produce light, like candles and suns and moons. Therefore, tziantihu or hachayim, it's the light of life. Shem zem yuchas laboire olam hanikra chayim. This relates to the, the, the power that gives all life, the all-powerful being of life-giving, which is Hashem. Yisivu melech chayim, v'la Torah shenikra chayim, and the Torah is also called life. Tichsiv Torah shachom makor chayim, v'la tzadikim hanikraim chayim, and the righteous who are called alive. Tichsiv atim adveikim ha'ashem alakeichem. And of course, his name is chayim. But he, what, he's, what he's doing is he, he's saying essentially, I am the conduit of this, right? So I am the conduit of connecting real light, the light of life. The life is Hashem, Tzadikim, Torah, which is being expressed through this book. Very beautiful, very beautiful idea over here. And, um, and he, he, he describes at the end that Chaim Ben Lechacham Sholem. Moshe Atar, This is the end of his introduction. I'd like to just, to, to, to just for the sake of, of uh, a completion, take a look at a few examples and stories that relate to his Pirush specifically. I did include one of the diary of his students as they arrived in, in Galil and in the, their movement around to the Kvarim of many of the Tzaddik and buried in the north of Israel. Not for now. They're just, just three insights that Orachayim yields, some of them more famous, some of them less famous, and how they relate to his life as well. Just to get a sense of, remember his first point, he talked about the idea of focus. He said that we need to have space and focus. Physically, uh, physically we need to be deprived of all other distractions, and mentally we need to be deprived of distractions. So he says a really fascinating thing. He talks about the first sin of humanity, Adam, Chava, Adam, Nachash, in that order, and the curses which are given to each one of the three parties. And this is, this is what he says in, in Source 2, we're going back to page 4. And to Adam, to the man, because you listen to your wife, this is all the curse you're going to get. What does that mean? Arachim says a pirush, which again has just not been said beforehand. This is completely unique, untraveled terrain. Arachim says, 
Why does Hashem introduce the fact that he didn't listen to his wife? I mean, that's a good thing, generally speaking, right? Um, Hashem should have jumped to the fact that you ate the wrong fruit. Here's his suggestion. And the time he ate it, he didn't really know that this was the forbidden fruit. So Hashem can't accuse him of eating the wrong tree because he didn't really know at that point in time. He ate it as a mistake. He says, What's happening over here? Is that he was not he was not living enough, he was not living enough in the moment to, in a certain sense, think about what he's doing. Meaning, yes. In every relationship, there should be trust. And in every relationship, we should trust what a person, the closest person in our life to us, and trust them wholeheartedly. At the same time, how could a person be living in a haphazard way not to be aware of what they're eating, not to be aware of what they're doing? In fact, it's interesting, when it comes to Hilchus Yom Kippur, the Ramah says that it, sometimes a shoigeg is more severe than a zadon. What does it mean, a shoigeg, a mistake is more, more of a problem than a zadon? To do teshuva. The answer is, is because there's a carelessness involved in a shogeg, which underlie, which shows that underlying this, there is a deficiency in our subconscious perspective towards something. So the example I give is, nobody just, you know, traipses along the tra- railway track and steps onto the third rail. Nobody just, you know, by mistake does that because the stakes are too high to make that kind of mistake. Where would, do we make a mistake? We make a mistake where things don't matter as much, which is why... If a person, Rahman al-Sun, wakes up on a Shabbos morning and thinks it's Sunday morning and flicks on the light, which is a shogate, because they, they were in a, they, at that point in time, if they lived at the time of the base of Migdash, they would bring a korban khatas. A korban khatas costs a lot of money. And the reason that a person brings a korban khatas is because that shogate, that mistake, is a, sh- a sign that subconsciously they aren't aware enough of what they're doing. Shabbos isn't severe enough like that third rail on the, on the, on the railway track not to touch. Because if they did care about it enough, they'd be much more careful. Which means if Hashem said there's one mitzvah in the world not to do, uh, uh, he should have been a little more careful about what he's eating. Therefore, that, that, that in terms of what we'll call living in the moment, being able to appreciate things, not just living the life that others put on our agenda, not just living the to-do lists of our email, which is somebody else's agenda, being able to be living a life of, of, of perspective and mission. The second is a very fascinating thing, and this actually relates to a story that happened the Orachaim was a, allegedly a goldsmith. And he used to have very unusual work hours. He was actually an assistant to somebody else who was, um, I believe, either not Jewish or not a from Jew. And this, they once got a contract from the vizier, the sultan of the area that he was living in. I don't know if this was in Meknes or in Saleh. But nonetheless, he, they got a contract for the king. The king, was, his daughter was getting married. And the king said he would like gold to be sewn into the garments of the wedding, the, uh, for, for the wedding, and they gave all their garments to the, to the, to to the, this the, this particular goldsmith. This goldsmith was not able to produce the results within the time, and they, therefore the sultan was about to kill him. So he blamed the orachim. Now it happens to be that that the orachim at this point in time was not working full time. It wasn't that you signed a contract and you had to be there from nine to five. You had to get the job done. The way he did it was was that if you if he had enough money for the month. 
then he would then he would take a siesta and be able to spend more time learning. If he had not enough, he'd work a little more. The person, by the way, the, the, the person he worked for tried to adjust things to try to pay him less so he'd work more. Right, so anyways, but nonetheless, at this point in time, he blamed the Orachayim. The Orachayim, therefore, was sentenced to death. And the way it worked in, in those days was that the king had a very large park in the back of his palace. And in a certain enclosure was where he kept his wild beasts, lions, and various uh, carnivorous cats. And anybody who disagreed with the king was lowered into that enclosure. And that's what happened. They took the Orachayim, and they lowered him into this enclosure. And usually, what would ensue was a terrible screaming and, and uh, an attack, and then silence, and they heard nothing. And they looked over the edge, and the Orachim had one request. He asked if he could take his talus, his tefillin, and his tehillim with him. That's what he did. And there they looked down, and he was sitting in the middle, and he was covered with his talus, and he was saying tehillim. And all the cats were standing around him. And for three days, they left him like this, and there was, nothing happened. They were able to take him out, and he was, and, uh, and Orachim survived. Now, What's fascinating about this, what's fascinating about the story, there's very, some, by the way, there are some very, very, very strange stories about the Orachim. Some very miraculous stories about the Orachim, meaning supernatural stories, even after his death. People who pray by his grave. There's, there's, there are some very supernatural stories which occur even in the recent history. The Jordanians, when they try to destroy his grave, right, there's a lot of very interesting things that happen. Nonetheless, they pulled him out and listened to his pirush on the Torah. And that reflects this. Just, just this is such. Th- there have been books written on this comment. This comment of the Arachai. Books have been written about this idea. Here's what he says. It talks about we're about to get to Parshas Vayeshev. The brothers are sitting there. They're waiting. All ten brothers, except Binyamin and Yosef. Yosef is sent down to visit his brothers. There's a lot of animosity between them. They're coming down. The brothers want to kill him. And Reuven has a fantastic suggestion. So Reuven says in the bottom of page 4, source for Vayishmaru Uvein, Vayitzileu Miyadam, Vayomer Nakenu Nafesh. Let's not kill him, says Reuven. What should we do? Let's throw him into a pit with scorpions and snakes. Excuse me, Reuven? How, how do, you, you said let's not kill him, right? So if you're, not go, if you're not going to kill him, right, then don't put him into the snake pit. So says the Arachim HaKadosh. This is just such a, this statement over here has, shaped and shifted Jewish history in terms of perspective of theology. Here's what he says in source 5. We're not going to do it explicitly. Let's be, let's be more inadvertent to his death. This is what his claim was to them. It was a hidden reason. You want to really return him to his father. If Hashem did not will it, the animals of the field would not be able to kill him, reflecting his own life. And he won't die in famine. So let's think about the comments. And I left out the last paragraph, but let's think about this for a second. That means to say, if we put him in the pit at the mercy of nature, what will happen? Nothing. Nothing. If we kill him, <coughs> we will be responsible. Which means, what was Hashem's plan? If we put him in the pit and he survives, that means Hashem's plan was that he should live. But if we kill him, then what has, what's just happened? Human free will, Bechira Chavshis, has, so to speak, 
now changed part of the way that the history would unfold. Do you see what he's saying over here? This is unlike Rav Sajagon, unlike the postdoc that, that Rav Sajagon is based on in Necheskel, which is the idea that Hashem has a plan and the plan's going to happen no matter what and the vehicles are going to give you, get you to that end and that the way that Rav Sajagon says it is that Retzach is in the hands of humans and Movis is in the hands of Hashem. No, says Arachana Kodesh. A human being has such powerful Bechira Chavshis they could shift the divine plan which would be demonstrated by the fact that the animals wouldn't kill him. That's the, that's the theology behind this. That means to say that there are certain people who can interfere with other people's plans in life through the power of the Bechir Chavshis. These are two ideas in tension, human free will and Hashem's plan. How do we negotiate the two? The Racham is pushing more along the spectrum towards Bechira here according to what he's doing. That's remarkable. Also reflective of his same experience in life which is that if Hashem does not will the animals to eat me, they're not going to eat me. Now, again, you have to be the Oracham HaKadosh to be on that such a level. But we don't try this at home without close adult supervision. And don't bring the adults into the lion's den either. But nonetheless, this is, this is, this is, this is, this is what the Oracham says. One last comment, and this is just, um, this is less or no. Now, I just think this is something worthwhile understanding on the Kabbalistic side. The Oracham is remarkable in so many ways. But one of the ways that he's remarkable is, as we've just seen over here, he has given a shat in terms of Adam which is really based on the pshat. The way he looks at it is why is Hashem focusing on the fact that he just listened rather than thought, right? That is a pshat. Over here, this is a deep th theological truth which he is expanding. The, the Mechta Meliyahu spends pages on this idea. Who can interrupt other people's bechira, uh, um, uh, plan? Gezerah. How strong does your Bechira have to be? Why you have to stay in the realm of a tzaddik who perhaps might be impervious to other people interrupting them? Fascinating discussion in and of itself. Nonetheless, in this last one over here is deeply Kabbalistic. And this is something which relates also to his own life. And th this, is, this is very, very heavy. But here's what he says. This is the beginning of Pasha's Tazria talks about childbirth. He says, Human beings were created backwards and forwards. At the end of all the creations physically, but in thought at the beginning. What does that mean? Uh, that the Spirit of God was hovering at the beginning of Barashas, that Spirit of Hashem was what was transmuted into the Neshama Leitzar. That means to say that if we look at creation, there were two stages of creation of humankind. The Ruach, the spiritual component, and the physical component. Where was the spiritual component created? At the beginning. When was the physical component created? At the end. Right? There's two stages of creation. At the time of conception of a human being, Amrzal, the Zohar HaKadosh says, Says that at the time of conception, which is the seminal moment of creation of the human being, the thoughts matter. And therefore, positive thoughts, thoughts of Yiras Hashem, thoughts of clinging to one's partner, are in a certain way able to bring down a holy soul and thoughts about other things actually bring down more complicated souls. This is a very lofty idea. It's a very, a very powerful idea. The Gemara in the Dome talks about these kind of things and talks about what one should not be thinking. And he goes on to say, he says, he talks about Chizkiah Melech and the daughter of, of Yeshayah and, and, and the daughter of Yeshayah. And he says, that's why it talks about Isha Kisazriah V'yoldah, there's two stages of creation. And he says, uh, the last part is the, the part that I'd like to, uh, to focus on right now. Just to, uh, to have a sense over here that in the Western world today, thought is an irrelevant concept. If you're not tweeting it or saying it, it doesn't matter. If it doesn't hurt anybody. 
In Judaism, thought is incredibly important. The kavana we have in certain things, and specifically towards the beginning of things, is very, is very crucial to the unfolding of that thing, specifically when it refers to the life of a human being. And he says one, one stage further. And he says the following. I'd just like to focus on this. Here we are. We have four lines from the bottom, the very beginning of the line. Mitochius devoreno, eile. From what we're about, we just said here, taskil omroi, we can understand what the Pasuk says, ves anefesh asher osu b'choron. The souls they created in Choron. Who's this referring to? Avram and Sarah. Shehem anafosh asher osu b'zivugam. That means to say that every time that Sarah and Avram Avinu had a relationship, even though there was no physical creation, there was no child which was yielded from that relationship. There were spiritual entities created, bodiless spiritual entities which were created. Even though there was no physical platform for them to find. And that's in the Pasuk, which means to say, just to understand this, is that there is a certain spiritual power that Hashem invested in humanity which depends on the thoughts of a person and that's even independent of the physical platform created to contain those thoughts. So that's how powerful it is. Now why is this so important to understand? First of all, this means to say that as opposed to the world around us which looks at the pristine relationship of a man and wife as national geographics and worse and the songs and the language all reflect a completely empty physical relationship of two people looking to get pleasure from one another. In our world, there's a very divine aspect to this, and that divine aspect is, finds its seat in our thoughts and in our purity. And what's interesting about this is that the Orachim himself never had children. The Orachim never had children. He married twice. He never had children, which is why it is said that people who learn the Orachim HaKadosh in a certain sense, are continuing his line of children because this was, this was his child. And there is a segula, in fact, to learn the Orachayim every week for having children. And part of that is as a reflection of this is because there are two aspects of creation. He, like Avram and Sarah, never had that, the, 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 the body itself, so to speak, of the children in the way formally that perhaps he had wished for. But nonetheless, he was able to converge and convert that into the thoughts which we were able to receive. Which means, when we're learning this, we are connecting across the centuries to one of the greatest minds and illuminators. They say that when the Baal died, he passed away on a Shabbos. In Europe at this time, in Mezhebush, Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov was washing Netzilas Yodayim for Surah Shleshes. And he said to his Talmudim, the light of the West has been extinguished. They said to him, how did you know? There was no Facebook feed. It wasn't the, you know, it wasn't the house help who was checking. Right, this, that wasn't. How did that happen? He said, because there's only one person in every generation who has access to understanding a soid, the secret of Netzilat Sodaim. And at this moment in time, I had access to it beforehand. I never had access to it because the Orachim left. He knew at that moment in time that the Orachim had left. He knew at this point in time, the, the Baal Shem Tovs, so to speak, the shift had happened from Israel to Europe, to Mezhebush, and that was, uh, that was the continuation. Just as the magnitude, the Orachim HaKadosh is a, is a very, very holy person. One of the very few people on the Torah who's called HaKadosh. Who are the others? Shlach HaKadosh and Alch HaKadosh. Those who are endowed, endowed with a level of Kedusha, of, of Kabbalistic Kedusha. It is really, a, I highly encourage people to take a little bit of time to spend time learning 
the depth and breadth of the Arachayim. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful, meaningful day.